Welcome to the Insurance Brokers Podcast with your host, Sarah Myerskoff. This business podcast is for ambitious brokers determined to grow their business. Our guests are highly experienced industry experts and innovators. This is the place to leverage their success, learn how to break through barriers to growth, and discover a community of support and ideas whilst growing your business. On this episode of the Insurance Brokers Podcast, we're talking to David Hughes of Mulberry Risk. David has over 20 years insurance expertise working for various Lloyd syndicates, AIG and Marsh. David has extensive expertise across actuarial modelling, pricing and reserving for commercial and niche markets. David has put together a unique offering for the MGA market in the form of Mulberry Risk and we're delighted to be speaking to him today. Hello, David. Thank you very much for coming on the Insurance Brokers Podcast. I'm excited to have you here. Um, Welcome. Thank you, Sarah. So your perspective on the insurance industry obviously is different to some of the other people we've had on because you are predominantly in the MGA market. Do you want to tell us a bit more about Mulberry Risk and what you do? Yes, we're... um... Oh, I started Mulberry Risk about three years ago to provide services which an MGA doesn't really have access to, um, either because they're not affordable or actually um, those services aren't available because of the skill sets. And primarily those services are around actuarial uh, reserving and pricing. And typically they're either too expensive or the people with that expertise don't really understand MGAs and their unique, their unique position in the market, how they operate. What's your background that kind of opened up this niche market for you and made you go, that's where my life is? <laughs> yeah, life, life as an actuary in the MGA world. Um, I don't know many people who say that. So, so my, my background, um, I've 20 plus years in the Lloyds and London market. A good proportion of that is in the actuarial side, probably the, the pinnacle being chief actuary of uh, Navigator Syndicate. I then moved on to AIG in a capital management role which was working with the CEO, CFO, uh, to allocate capital across Europe, um, including UK, uh, to business lines and understanding how we can best get the returns out of that capital. Then moving on from AIG to Marsh, first time working at a broker. Um, I headed, headed up the analytics team there. And our purpose was to help uh, our clients with understanding their risk finance. So how much self-insured retention should they be taking, the uh, capital usage of policies they're buying, um, and you know, mostly FTSE 100 clients. But actually, we did some work also for businesses like uh, Blackpool Pleasure Beach. So that gave me a real insight in um, much more front-end working with brokers and understanding that side of the market much more. I'd always wanted to start my own business, and, and I actually left full-time employment and started an MGA. I've got a friend who's um, launching an airline. So I thought, if you can launch an airline, I can launch uh, an MGA. <laughs> that didn't really work out for various reasons. But I ended up working with uh, an MGA, a uh, motor fleet, commercial motor fleet MGA. And during that process of working with them, I could really see the value of the actual services into that MGA. You know, it's a classic target MGA for us of being between five and 15 million pounds annual GWP. Operator owned, probably up to about 12 staff, but really wanting to behave like an, a true underwriter. 
But of course, they don't have those services of actuaries to help them project their ultimate loss ratios, etc. So you're actually coming at this from every angle you could be in terms of understanding. And I'm talking about the business entrepreneurial. I'm starting an MGA. I'm talking about understanding the fundamental challenges within the MGA space, but also from the broker space. Yes. And understanding, I suppose, uh, you know, taking your first point now on the entrepreneurial area, we've been really blessed so far with the clients we have that, that nearly every single one of our clients has taken that entrepreneurial step. So when we do meet either a coffee or sometimes a beer, there is this connection of we're small businesses with limited resources trying to make the best we can do. And, and we get that real connection and, and we get a partnership coming out of that. And you know, I enjoy meeting our clients um, and we have quite a few clients now. And then coming you know, from the other point you raised about different perspectives Yeah, going from, I I suppose, MGAs now when they're getting their capacity placed or reviewed internally and actually will be looking at that. So I've done that historically um, at Navigators, at Beasley, a little bit at uh, AIG, not so much in that role, but I've got experience and understanding of what goes on there. And my chief actuary was doing that for AIG until very recently, until he joined us. And then also the brokers, it's very easy to sit there and think, what value does the broker bring? But a broker's job is incredibly difficult. They've got to satisfy their clients, and that's quite a, a vicious world. But also they've got to place the insurance, and whether they place it to an MGA or an underwriter, there are various challenges, and there's challenges with data, information, and they're constantly up against it. So understanding those different parts of the market have really helped, and I think... I'd hope to think that we have um, a good deal of empathy for people operating in that side of the market, um, the smaller brokerages, plus, um, as I said, our target clients, the MGAs. And the key word there, empathy, is backed by an understanding and ability to support where those challenges are, which I think is phenomenal. What would you say the top, I don't know, I was going to say three, but 12, one, whatever comes to mind, what would you say the top challenges are both for the MGA market now and going into the next year or two, and the same question for the broker market. Okay, so um, for the MGA market, top challenges are securing capacity, both in terms of your current capacity and um, looking at securing new capacity. We also need to recognise that it's been a very long, um, soft market, Many people who listen to this podcast may not have ever had a hard market. But so, you know, insurers haven't been making money. That's why we've got a hard market. So as an MGA, don't hide your results. You know, you've grown your business. If your results aren't quite where they should be, then own those numbers. But now is a great opportunity to put a corrective strategy in and be clear about that strategy. And that's where we're helping about half of our MGAs take advantage of the market conditions and look to put corrective underwriting strategies which involve pricing, risk selection and portfolio management on their books of business to actually deliver that target return that the, their capacity providers are looking for. I think in terms of uh, for brokers, the, the challenge, one is actually understanding where the market's going in, in terms of the hardening rates, what that means. 
and having an education around that there are alternatives to actually just price. There's value, there's risk management. At Marsh, we used to look at what's called risk finance optimization, um, really looking at self-insured retentions, captives, risk retention groups. If I was a broker in this market, particularly with larger clients, I'd be really wanting to learn much more about those areas and how you can support your some of your more important clients in that, but also looking at the coverage you're getting for your smaller clients and making sure it's appropriate, isn't redundant, and really offer that professional consulting service to your clients. And there's quite a piece around that. I know we were both at the Anglia Market Forum last night and, and this was one of the topics that was that was discussed. There's quite a piece around that of educating the sales execs that are probably not dissimilar to my age. So my age, I say low to mid 30s, I'm actually the other side of that, but you know, that kind of age, because like you say, they haven't actually experienced a proper hard market. So that education piece is quite important. Yes, it's it's hugely important. Um, And and that's hard to overcome as well. Uh, We, you know, we're only human and people will be using the skills that have made them successful. Um, so being on the front end, a broker, sales executive, winning clients in the door, the methods they've been using for the past five years aren't necessarily going to work going forward. Just for completeness, what methods have been being used for the last five years and what do you think we should start to look at now? I'm probably talking um, <laughs> not, not from uh, real experience of the front end on the broker's side, although I have worked with some smaller brokers but typically it's been, I can, I can save you money. There are some other things, mm. but it has been, I've been able to save you money. I can, I've got a deal with this insurer, and I can save 5% or 10% off your premium. And it's been that brutal. Whereas going forward, it, it needs to be a real focus on putting risk protection in place, helping that business carry through, um, understanding their full risk concerns. And there's some great opportunities as well. Cyber is probably the big unknown. Educate yourself in cyber and be an expert in that. Product liability, you know, pick some of these areas which aren't so mainstream but niche and build that expertise level up there. Niche is a word that keeps coming up in all the conversations I'm having around these mm-hmm. podcasts and I think it's, it's probably key to the future of, of the way the insurance market's going. But just um, on that... I think you're absolutely right. Price can't be key. And I think the uh, FCA's dual pricing spring uh, report, when that comes out, that will be one of the key factors that change that, that mm-hmm. whole price-orientated thing. So starting to put some real practice in now to push the value and offer the service and the, the relationship building, which I know a lot of brokers do. Their, their ethos is... is we are relationship orientated. We work with our clients, for our clients. And I think trying to develop that into some kind of almost business strategy relationship is another one of the points that came up last night. It's just a really interesting way of, of developing it further. One of my biggest clients, they're on the MGA side, they're a monoline product, personal lines. And their product offering is heavily focused on what's right for the customer. And it's almost like the old I think it was Toyota production line. 
where anyone on that production line can stop the production line by putting their hand up and saying something's wrong and hold it all up while they investigated it. And at this client, they have such pride in that customer journey and doing right for the client that it goes right through the company and anyone at any point in time can say this isn't right for the client, for the customer. And also on the back of that, their employee culture reflects that as well. Employees are really proud to work there and they come up with ideas and they feel listened to. And I'm trying to build that culture in, in my business. And it's not easy. It's really hard. But you um, can feel it when you come in here. You can feel that, that vibe, that happy people are valued. You can feel it as you walk in. Oh, thank you. I think it's, thank you. it's really it's, good. Um, we, we work hard at it. And I, I'm constantly making mistakes. Um, but we constantly try and, and listen and listen to people and get feedback. But I think when we start looking at, uh, you know, when I look at what we do for our MGA clients, we start with the premise of we know they need these services and we want to partner long term with our clients to make them better. We feel that we have a lot to offer our MGAs to help their businesses be better and help them stand out as a high quality MGA business. And we want to do that in a way that is affordable as well. And in some of our MGAs, we've got some milestones that um, we do get a retainer. And then if we help them hit, hit those milestones, they get a windfall, but we get a little bit of share of that windfall. So we're aligned. And, and again, we, we constantly try to put ourselves in our MGA shoes. What are their challenges? What, what keeps them awake at night? And how can we help support them around that? And I think from a broker's perspective and an MGA is to really put yourself in your client's mind and say, what is it that they're challenged with and how, and the services I'm offering, what can I, how can my services help them? And I think when you do that, it all of a sudden starts changing the relationship. I agree with you. And I'm doing some work with a, um, a client at the moment, which is around that, but it's around profiling your customer so what we've done is we've sat down with their list of customers and brainstormed who the ideal ones are. And by ideal, I mean, who do you feel you give the most value to? Who do you feel you have that connection with? Because that's really where you want to be, because that's what allows you to, to offer the value, but also to understand the challenges, because you've got an open relationship. So let's understand your top 20% clients. And I mean top in terms of ideal customer I don't I'm not talking finances I'm talking who do you want to be who, who aligns with your USP and then let's profile them really profile understand their demographic their geographic their psychographic mm-hmm. really detailed understanding because once you've built that picture you know who your target market are and that work isn't often done because the understanding of the customer doesn't go that detailed mostly because of resource to be honest and time management and you get you you know you're in your business and you're firefighting and that happens to everybody myself included but it's just a really important piece of project work that you can do and if you visit it every year it gives you a really um really profiled detailed target market i put a little spin on that mm-hmm. and i love a spin a controversial one it's not controversial ah. it, 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 it's a slightly <laughs> different way of looking at it so Previously, we'd been going through trying to sell actuarial skills. And you met John, my head of sales, yeah. the Irish guy. And he'd be calling up saying, actuarial, actuarial, affordable. 
And some people it worked and we did get some traction. And I stepped away and there's an there's a international marketeer called Seth Godin. Yeah, I've um, got permission to book. That's it. Yep. And he, um, he talks about a minimum viable audience. And this is how small can you make that target audience almost? And he talks about a carpenter. So you could be a general carpenter. And that's fine. And now all of a sudden you're competing against every general carpenter out there. But if you were to become a specialist in 16th century French woodwork, you're probably going to be the only person with that specificity. And yes, you're going to have a small audience. And, you know, across the UK and Europe and globally even, you may have a very, what feels like a very small... Prospect universe. Prospect universe. But when they want their 16th century French woodwork repaired or improved, refurbished, they'll Google that and one name pops up. And that's almost what we've tried to do. You know, we look at the MGA world. Let's say there's 450 MGAs in the UK, thereabouts. There's probably schemes and going outwards from that. But we've deliberately said, right, our target market, our minimum viable audience, our MGAs with a premium between five and 15 million pounds, operator owned. Because we feel that one, that we can get the pricing right for those and we understand their businesses and we can streamline it. And additionally, we can make the most impact for those businesses. Now it doesn't preclude other pieces of work. It still allows us to pick up large MGAs and work with them and, and add value. But really, when you're communicating, and, and all of a sudden, when you've got that minimum viable audience in mind, your marketing, your communication, your website, everything aligns. Because all of a sudden, I imagine that carpenter, you know what his website would look like. You know where he'd be advertising. Um, you know when people are calling up and saying, what's your USP? Immediately, it rattles off. So I think that applies to our MGAs as well. So one of my MGAs uh, we work with produces outstanding results in an area which is incredibly hard to underwrite. And they brought us in to validate their results because no one believes them. Wow. And, um, and I didn't believe it either. And I sat down with their claims manager and went through it and I went, really incredible. But actually, when you understand their underwriting philosophy, their broker strategy... It all fits. It all fits basically that specificity, that, that idea of really being focused. And they're not trying to be the biggest MGA. They're trying to be the best in delivering an underwriting profit in one of the hardest areas to underwrite. And that, that really stood out. That comes back to niche, what we were saying before about niche, which actually, if you take it all the way back, it comes back to your vision, what is it you want to do? What's your, your value proposition around it and who is it aimed at? Mm -hmm. And how are you really going to profile that? And I think it's easy to get caught in the where business comes, you take it. Whereas it's quite a difficult thing to do to turn business away because it's not in your direction that you want to go. But it's quite important because it can detract. And I've been guilty of that numerous times over my entrepreneurial life, which probably spans about eight years now. So yeah, I get it, but it's, it's quite key to keep pulling you back to focus. But if you haven't got that real value proposition, it's very difficult to align where you're going and who your customers are. 
Yeah, and you've got to keep testing it. Mm. You have to. When we had our board meeting about we had a board meeting about three months ago, and my head of creative, uh, Scott Cameron, has produced some amazing stuff that we put out on LinkedIn. I love your LinkedIn campaigns. I think they're amazing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they can be a bit mad sometimes. Mad, the madder um, the better. <laughs> but uh, so we we're quite pleased with where we got to, and and Scott said we've had a lot of trial and error. And I said, no, we haven't. And guesswork. I said, no, everything's been an experiment. Um, well, we've had a hypothesis. We've tested it. We've looked at the results. We've made a decision. And these experiments aren't big things. They're really tiny. You know, it could be that we've, we've put a post out on LinkedIn. And we've put it out at 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock, and 2 o'clock to see which one gets the best response. Or we put it out on a Friday afternoon compared to a Monday morning. We've tried Sunday mornings on things. So we're constantly, we, I mean, we're, we're, we're half, half the people in the business are actuaries um, and very analytically minded, but we are constantly trying to measure and um, see how performance goes. And it is, it is quite difficult. I mean, LinkedIn, we put, LinkedIn is our primary portal. We talked about the other social media channels and we've decided... We're a small business, LinkedIn. And I think, you know, again, if I was a small regional broker, I'd be very active on LinkedIn. And would you be active as a business or as an individual? Question one. Question two, what would your marketing spend be in terms of development of this type of, um, you know, fun videos, Lego movies, uh, whatever? Crikey, ah. That's a very direct question, and I, I get that. So to your first question, company or person? At the moment, I think LinkedIn is a really personal platform. Um, people connect with in- individuals. Secondly, there's a really good book, um, I've forgotten his surname, called Key Person of Influence. And the, in that book, uh, Daniel, what's his chops? That's what we'll call him. Daniel, what's his chops? I know da- him Daniel. well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but his book, um, the key person of influence really talked I've, about. I've heard the title, but the no- name won't come to mind. Um, when when you actually look at what he talks about in the book, is having someone in your business who is a key person of influence. There's someone who people know in the market. The people who can open doors. The people who have a reputation. The people you want to have on podcasts. And so you know, Brendan McManus. You know last night is a key person of influence so and and of various people and so you know one of the things about mulberry risk and it sounds kind of slightly egotistic but is to raise my profile as a key person of influence to be you know one of the specialist individuals about mgas and helping mgas that's you know i want to be like that uh, that carpenter that when someone googles mga blah de blah my name pops up and then I get called out to conferences and talking it. And, and that becomes your marketing. So, and that's where LinkedIn really helps. You know, there's a lot of stuff that comes out, which I've supposedly created, but actually it, a lot of that work comes from my team and particularly Scott. The videos, um, although I do do some of them and I'll make the odd comment here, but that's what LinkedIn is. It's very about making those personal connections. I agree. Um, in terms of marketing spend, we spent quite a lot last year on marketing to really last year was probably we grew from 
I started here three employees and finished at the end on 12. And we had four clients and we finished at the end of the year on 18. That's phenomenal. Do you put that down to marketing? Question one. Question two is, marketing such a widely used term. There's a lot of fluffiness, which has a place. There's a lot of lead generation through marketing, which has a place. And that's where the sales and marketing cross over. Where are you on it? Do you, do you cover both? Do you? Yeah. Um, I'm very strong on brand. Mm-hmm. So brand is, is really key. Well, we chose, I chose pink as a colour for the business because it's very strong and stands out. When we go, we're going to be at the Lloyd Sevens again this year. You'll, you'll see rugby's bit of a theme in the company. It's, it's something quite close to my heart. Um, but... Mine too. One of my other businesses is a rugby business. I teach oh, there rugby we go. to kids. So <laughs> we should talk about that afterwards. <laughs> um, so... Uh, you know, went to Lloyd Sevens and we bought 500 pairs of sunglasses, all pink, and we could only afford to get Mulberry wrist printed on one side. It was twice the price to get them printed. But um, and my head of sales, the whole company goes out to that, um, wear pink top, pink sunglasses, and my head of sales gets the box of sunglasses running around. I told him not to sell them, but knowing John, he probably did get five <laughs> for each one. But we had, you know, we are a tiny company. But there we had 500 people at the Lloyd Sevens with our pink sunglasses. We had security guards wearing them. We had people behind the bar. Everywhere you looked, you saw the pink sunglasses. And then we had friends of Mulberry who we took along. Um, and we gave them all our pink polo tops. So we had about 25 people in our pink polo tops. And um, even, our, even our chairman, who um, he didn't know he was going to be our chairman at the time, but I, I knew it. He, he joined us in <laughs> November. Um, he's a senior director at one of the big insurance brokers, he even wore our pink polo tops and our sunglasses. Wow. So, you know, marketing doesn't have to be expensive. But we, we spent things on conferences last year and we experimented. And we've actually decided this year we're probably not going to do conferences. We didn't really get the bang for buck from it. We get a lot more from doing marketing events, which are a bit more guerrilla, maybe. Um, aligning where people want to go and have fun. We want to be a fun business. We sponsor Cambridge University women's rugby team. We took 19 clients and prospects uh, to the varsity game in December last year. Brilliant. Um, we were offered a box, but we turned it down. We all sat outside, we had great seats. And yeah, you know, drinks and beer, um, beer and food. And we just had a great time, met the team afterwards. And, and actually that whole day, cost us about a third of attending a conference and yet the people who came along with us have actually become what I love about my business is friends as well you know we, we meet up we bump into each other in the bar and or in the cafe <laughs> coffee house and um <laughs> you know and good chat. And they've all said they want to come again this year and so you know it's marketing doesn't have to be expensive but you do need to reserve some money for it. Mm. You know, our videos we put out cost about £750 to £1,000 a go. And you do those for clients, don't you? We do those for clients. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, we're constantly... Yeah, it, it's, and it's all about building the brand. You know, the reason why I called it Mulberry Risk is I wanted something you could build stories around. You know, I didn't want David Hughes Consultancy Limited. I mean, it sounds very dull. But with Mulberry we can actually create various images and very various topics. So when we do go to the Lloyd Sevens, we go and buy three bottles of um, Mulberry Gin, Boodle's Mulberry Gin. 
And so when we're going around the ground and we can give people a shot and they're going, oh, Mulberry Gin, never had that before. And the name connects. We can build stories about the tree, about um, silkworms. We've got a product called Silkworm. We've got, we have got a product called Mulberry Gin. General Insurance Network or something. We don't know what the end stands for. Yeah. But again, it's about building stories and about um, almost we want people to understand what Mulberry is, the value it can deliver. But actually, we want people to enjoy working with us which most of the time we get that feedback. We don't always get it right. And certainly the, you know, we, we lost one or two clients, walked away from one. Um, and, you know, and, I, and I look back and, and I try to learn what, what did we get right and wrong? One of the clients we lost, um, we didn't quite get the scope together and correct at the beginning of the project. And our business has changed so rapidly. Mm. Um, and we try to manage that relationship the best we can. Um, we've also, We've got something really right. We've made some really good value for some of our clients and help help them grow and partner with them. And, and I think that uh, self-development learning analysis per client, per, I don't know, quarter, per whatever, just continual analysis is really important. It is. And, you know, we, we, we do have a client survey which goes out. Um, it's very hard to hear critique, even though you know it. If you're in tune with your business and where you're going, you very often know what you're not doing right. And we, you know, just like many of our MGA clients, are trying their best to do the right thing with the resources you've got and you're trying to do the right outcome. And, I, and actually, most of our clients appreciate that, that we are... People. People. And we're on their side. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think if you, as a broker or an MGA, I mean... The, the, one of the questions I always ask my MGAs is, who's your client? It's not the person you're insuring. It's actually your broker, um, the service delivery. That's a lot of MGAs offer outstanding service, way above that incumbent insurers do. They also are able to be a bit more flexible on some of their policy terms and conditions to make it fit that niche area. So our good MGAs really deliver on that service proposition to their brokers who are their clients. Now there's some of them who go direct to customer and again that customer focus you can really see it coming out but it is to be honest when you when you get it wrong. Yeah I think that's a really big learning curve Mm. and it takes some balls to do. (laughs) Hands up I screwed up I'm sorry. It does. It actually goes quite a long way I think. It does and and, and we're all learning. (laughs) Yeah (laughs) aren't we? Well, I, um, I think that's been really interesting. Interesting for me because MGAs are not where I'm at. I'm much more focused on the broker market, so it's a bit of a learning curve. So I very much appreciate it. Thank you very much, David. My pleasure, Sarah. I shall let you know when the episode's out. If anybody's got any questions they want me to ask David, I'm sure I can uh, persuade him with a beer or a coffee uh, to come on again. So uh, let us know in the comments. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you.